And so then my mouth just goes bop, 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 bop. Oh, and I can't believe I just said that. Boom. Yeah, you're you're busy. Yeah. Meanwhile, I don't have a driver's license, which is <laughs> oh, yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> oh, okay. I'll try and do the the two second version of the story. Uh, I was in a car accident last week. I was rear-ended by a high school student on my way to teach. And uh, so I was not found at fault. However, when the police officer was taking his report and he ran my driver's license, he said, I'm going to have to confiscate your license because you are driving on a suspended license. I said, what? (laughs) um, Because I have, well, then he says, well, the, the license is suspended for failure to maintain liability insurance. I said, I have car insurance. It's right here. Remember, you've already run it. He said, right. I know. That's really weird. <laughs> Short version of the events is that I had a traffic stop for a speeding ticket like years ago, 2011. And um, I had the original insurance deed, and the, but the current one I had on my, my phone is like an app. And Kansas didn't take that at that time. So they said, well, technically, you, you don't have proof of insurance. So to go to the court and have that all removed, because I had insurance. I just didn't have the proper form of it. Well, apparently, the court never spoke to the state to tell them that the charge had been completely dismissed. So all this time, the state's saying, oh, you don't have insurance. So my license was suspended because of this. And <laughs> no one decided to notify me of this. Um... I got this all cleared up within about 48 hours, but I still cannot get a reinstatement letter from the Kansas Department of Driver Control because they, I I still can't get through to them. Every time I try, it's like, hold, 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 hold. Everybody's busy, so we're just going to end this call. Hold, 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 hold. We're going to end this call. It's crazy. So the upshot of that is that tonight you're going to live on the edge. Oh, yeah. I've been living on the edge since Thursday. <laughs> in that wow. respect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope no police officers are listening to this show. Right. And, and, and seek you out. <laughs> I guess we're not doing this live. It's, it's recorded. So I suppose in theory, by the time this goes out in like a day, you could have your license and it's fine. Darren, you're fine. That's, that's what we're going to say. That's what we're going to say. I have my, I have my license. <laughs> Um, this is the part of the show where I should probably introduce you. Okay. Yay. Yeah. So your name is Darren Kennedy, unless mm-hmm. I'm mistaken. Yep. Uh, yep. That's it. That's uh, it. <laughs> and you are, um, you are an artist. Uh, right now we're focusing on, um, your writing, but you were just said earlier, you've got a rehearsal for, uh, a chorus line that you're doing as well. So you're an actor. We did some shows together in high school. Um, yes. so for those that don't know Darren, he's a very talented actor and singer and, uh, dancer and (laughs) uh, the thing that he probably won't shake his head at is, uh, that you're a talented writer as well. That's kind of your, that's your main passion. If I'm not mistaken, you are not mistaken. All right. All right. Yeah. And you've got, you've got actually, in addition to doing uh, a chorus line right now, uh, with, at Astra, you've got Heartland, which is your newest work. Actually, is it still a work in progress for I, you? I'm, I consider it a work in progress. Definitely. Okay. All right. So now, so this will be the, the 
premiere, uh, the world premiere of Heartland. And uh, that's coming up, let's see, am I right? September 19th through the 21st. Uh, here. Yeah, 22nd. Yep. Oh, 22nd, 22nd. And we're recording this show on the 16th of September, uh, 2013. So in a few short days, you'll be opening the show and then a few short days later, closing the show. So when you go into a process like this, um, where do you kind of, where is the writer cap and where is the actor cap and where is, cause you've done direction as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Before I have, yes. Yeah. So what, how do you go into a process with a show that you've written mm. and how do you, how do you sort of negotiate which thinking cap you're putting on? You know, recently I've been changing, I shouldn't say changing process, but sort of allowing myself to experiment. Heartland is really different in that Ad Astra had approached me, uh, the artistic uh, directors of Ad Astra, Craig Fisher and Dan Hines had approached me and said, hey, we'd love to do one of your pieces. Uh, and they approached you from out of the blue. You guys had never met before. Um, they contacted you. <laughs> so first of all, these are these are two two guys that I go and you go a ways back with. They know where all of the all of the bodies are buried. Right. <laughs> um, but yes, I've been um, friends and artistic collaborators of some standing for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, uh, Craig and Dan, I would say winter of last year said, hey, we're, we're thinking about our programming for next season. Would We'd love to do one of your pieces. And I said, that would be great. Uh, what I don't really have anything that I think could really easily be put up. And so they said, well, why don't we think about doing something specifically for us, something devised? And uh, I said, actually, that sounds like a great idea. So the process with Heartland, uh, Dan is directing, and he's been a part of it since the very beginning. Uh, He and I got together, and we made a list of performers that we'd around town that we'd really wanted to work with for quite some time. And uh, we started with some improvisations. We actually started with some just, just some discussions and uh, stories and ideas and, and situations that just kind of really got us fired up or made us curious or uh, got us emotionally invested. Was there a particular – at the beginning here when they first came to you, was there a particular story you, or a, an angle you wanted to explore or was just this completely wide open – you know, you didn't have any preconceived notions or you had a few? None. No pre, no preconceived notions. Very I, I imagine that would actually be almost more difficult than saying, we want to do a drama. We want to <laughs> right. do a comedy, you know? No, exactly. It was, I think, scary for me to a certain extent, but I think liberating to a certain extent. Oh, there's that phrase. Um, with <laughs> For Dan and the actors, because... They, they knew that I was not going to try to force them into a mold, that we were all going to go on a journey together. Uh-huh. And I think in large part, that's exactly what's happened. Um, after our first discussions, I came in with three or four what I call blank scenes, where the characters were just A, B, or C, and some events happened. And there were things that I was responding to from that initial discussion. Uh, and we went through them multiple times and we just discussed about what kinds of situations arose that seemed the most dramatically interesting that we could all get involved in and invested in. Uh, and then one, 
one of those scenes kind of ro- came to the fore. And we just, um, Dan sort of ran some improvisations off of it. And I said, hey, what if you, um, what if you try to answer this question about the characters? Run with that and see where that goes. What if this? Um, and see what happens. So this sounds like um, a very different sort of writing process than at least anything I've imagined you doing in the past. And to be yeah. quite honest, you know, I've never mm-hmm. really had this kind of conversation with you about some of the other works that you've done. You know, you've you're a, you're a Jeff nominated uh, writer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you just have awards from all over the place. I was looking at the uh, curriculum vitae that you sent my way, and you've got you've got some great recognition. Um, and I assume that in those other projects, and I could be wrong, that you sort of took a more traditional stance in writing those things. Yes, definitely. Uh, this is a this is a departure for me with uh, Heartland. And traditionally, uh, I I am a I don't want to say traditionalist in terms of my uh, in my content, but certainly in where the the play comes from for me and how I work with with getting my plays out there yeah that this is definitely a departure and I think for those previous scripts um, Brothers of the Dust which ran in Chicago and False mm-hmm. Cruise um, I came to those pieces from a really really personal place and I think I will always do that to a certain extent um, there's that phrase again yeah right <laughs> See, this is the thing with writers. We keep trying you, to hedge our bets. <laughs> you, you can't you know, uh, go back and edit any of this out. I mean, I can, I have the power here. I'm the writer here, Darren. Exactly. And, <laughs> I, and I have to relinquish that. That's the problem is that I, can't, I, I, I want the power of the edit. Yes. And I, and that's why the, the two, to a certain extent, always comes out. When I write <laughs> you, want to be able to, you want to be able to say, well, really, if you listen to the whole clip, what <laughs> I said. <laughs> yes. What? Well, yeah. You know, and you get, you get scared of talking in, in, in absolutes, right? Right. Uh, but but yeah. we're friends here. You can talk in absolutes. Exactly. You can say uh, that Ad Astra Theater Company is the best darn theater company in the world, surpassed by no other. Well, um, I, and you'd be A, right, and B, wrong. Isn't that right? Yeah. Isn't that part of what what we do on stage? Yes, but you make you make choices, right? Right. And you go with the choice as long as long as the choice is earned. Even if someone else says there's another valid choice, you say that's fine. That's just not the one that I went with. This time. Right. Right. Um, I so could, we're pals. I'm not gonna. I'm never gonna back you into a corner, Darren. Don't worry. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. You wouldn't have to because I back myself into my own corners. That's the thing. <laughs> I had to learn. I had to learn to start thinking before I spoke because I, my brain, my brain moves faster than my mouth. And so then my mouth just goes, bop, 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 bop. Oh, and I can't believe I just said that. Boom. That is the story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. To, to your initial question for, for pieces where I, I'm the originator of the idea. It's, um, it's always a, a consideration of what's, what's my trust level with the director? Um, how, how well do I think the, the director understands what I'm trying to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
which doesn't mean that they co-sign how I'm doing it, but that right. at least we're on the same page about what the script is trying to accomplish. And right. then that that leads to discussion of, hey, uh, that makes me question, but or this scene is really popping for me. Is this scene, does that come out of it? Um, that tends to be when I'm going into a production situation, the best way for me to work is to, so which leads to this other thing. I very rarely... I do my best not to direct my own work because I, I, I enjoy having that other voice yeah. uh, with me to say, hey, in the actual performance and putting this on and the, the practicalities of making this happen, I'm running up against this question. Can you respond to that? And I think I, I know I can't quite yet split my own mind sure. that well when it comes to my own work. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be a fairly uh, agreed upon idea that if you're the director, you're the director. If you're the writer, you're the writer, and ne'er the two shall meet. Now, some people do it that way, but I think the vast majority of people do say they work better if they keep those jobs separate. Well, you know, it's been interesting. I think I came up in undergrad and graduate school, definitely thinking that way. But I have to say that in once I really started working with peers and and even non-peers, but just in, in professional realms, I found a lot of people who were able to parse it out uh, in terms of being a writer-director or some sort of what I'll call uh, slash, slash identities, mm-hmm. uh, actor slash playwright. Uh, director slash writer on one project Mm -hmm. it takes a skill that either i don't have yet or i'm just not going to have and i'm Mm -hmm. totally okay with that but it takes a project that you just haven't been introduced to yet too i think that's true that's true too i think one of the things that i loved about chicago that was different from um my experience in new york is that when i was in new york people artists and professionals had identities that they were establishing um, mm-hmm. within certain fields. Uh, my fe- And that, there's, there are reasons for that, um, I think both positive and negative. Uh, but when I was working in New York on Brother, uh, sorry, in Chicago on Brothers of the Dust, I, f- I met a lot of artists who said just by dint of the need to, there was a job that needed to be done and someone had to do it associated with the production, they were learning all sorts of skills and having to figure out how to balance those on one production. Yeah, uh, which uh, I think is really valuable if you have that ability, right? <laughs> and you know, and I think as much as you say you don't have that ability, you do to an extent. I know our background, you and me. You know, we grew up, you know, at least in high school, doing shows at Helen Hawker Theater, mm-hmm. and that was a highly valued idea that. Yeah. You do a little bit of everything. You learn how to put together a set. You learn how to take down a set. You learn what what a lighting plot looks like. You learn all sorts. And this is as an actor, right? Mm-hmm. I I learned most of what I know about tech, or the basis of what, most of what I know about tech at uh, at Helen Hawker Theater and uh, the cross disciplinary idea of that is theater. Um, yeah. And I think that really is valuable, and I think that's part of the reason that I also really enjoyed my time in Chicago, because I think that city tends to appreciate that more, mm-hmm. pro- probably out of necessity, just like you said. You know, there are so many small 
uh, companies in Chicago. I feel like Ad Astra would fit right in in the Chicago theater scene. Totally. And I think that my experience with startup companies, for lack of a better term, but like really kind of guerrilla, nitty gritty, get down, everyone's wearing multiple hats companies you you learn those skills like you said by necessity and they tend to inform your work on whatever discipline you're in um though i am wearing my playwright hat with heartland i'm able to talk to dan as director because i've done that before yes dan understands what creation is because he may not be writing it now but he's been through that process he's been through the process that the actors are going through and so you know i mean it, i guess it's sort of tried and true that try, um people need to to have experience across the disciplines but it, uh, the more the more i work the more i realize how helpful it was to have that experience very early like even my teens before i went off and said this is what i want to make a career out of Right. It becomes sort of second nature. The more things you get exposed to, maybe not earlier on in your life, not like there's some sort of grand end point where it's like, and now you can't learn any new skills. Right. You know, cause I don't, I don't believe that at all, but I do think right. the time from when you first start acquiring that skill, even if you don't work on it all that much, time is important there. And so the fact that, you know, you did get to do some of that in high school probably makes coming back to this group of people even, uh, all the more, relaxing and yes. all the more um exciting yeah certainly certainly so um tell me just a little bit and i don't want to um i i'm one of those people that hates movie trailers right because what do <laughs> movie trailers do they spoil the movie that you might be interested in mm-hmm. like for instance riddick which is clearly an awful 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 <laughs> movie um <laughs> I I really didn't want to see that movie. I had no desire to. The trailer came on, and in about the first ten seconds, I was like, "Oh, this is this looks kind of interesting." And then I I saw the whole movie in the trailer, and I was like, "Oh, great! You just saved me ten bucks." Right. That's wonderful. Um. So assuming <laughs> that Heartland is at least as good as Riddick, I don't want to spoil Heartland for people. <laughs> Um, yeah, so no, so can you, bearing that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about, um, what Heartland turned out to be? And then maybe we can go back and explore how it got there. Yes. Uh, so what Heartland has become is the story of a young woman named Mel Hart who, um, makes contact with her long lost sister one night, uh, one day and invites her over to her father's house to, um, reconnect. And the play is the is what happens that night and sort of the the way I know this will shock you, then this isn't giving you the way the, the way <laughs> things completely go off the rails. Uh-huh. Uh, because again, there would be no play if things didn't go off the rails. Yes. Uh, theater is not about the day nothing happened. Happened. Exactly. Uh so that that's that's the basic engine of the plot of Heartland. All right, all right. And now you were talking before about how you didn't have any constraints going forward. And then I sort of realized, well, wait, you did, but they weren't necessarily self-imposed. So maybe they didn't sort of register. But going in, you knew you weren't going to have a 30-person cast, right? You knew you weren't 
writing um, a musical, or maybe you didn't know you weren't writing a musical. <laughs> we did. You know what? I will be honest. At the very beginning, we didn't. Dan and I didn't hold ourselves to any um, stylistic constraint, just in case okay. something sure. something wacky happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's and to be fair, some wacky things did happen. So. <laughs> but it does sound like from the beginning. You all were maybe on the same page of this is going to be more intimate, at least in uh, size of the cast, if nothing else, because mm-hmm. it, it sounds yes. like that. You said, you know, character A, character B, character C, as opposed to characters A through Z. So right. um, I assume that there was at least that in mind. When yeah. did you get to the gender of the characters? Because that's such a defining thing. When yeah. did that happen? You know, the evolution of the piece is really interesting. Um, Those three, the three actors that we started with, um, we gathered them and told them, you will be the core of the company, but it may be that actors get added after we've started working with some of these scenarios and as I go away to work. Um, But you'll remain the core of what we're working with here. And so that was that those three were two, two males and one female. Mm -hmm. Um, The initial scenes were again, completely blank. And so we, we played them differently with different ones of those three actors taking on different parts just to see what felt quote, right. And I don't even want to say right, but what seemed to have the most gas. What seemed to be sure. Cook. Sure. Um, I remember to your question. One of the one of the things that one of the actors, Doug Goheen, who's brilliant in his part, uh, he's, he's just amazing, said very early on in the process that he wasn't really interested in something that was uh, sort of a pot boiler or explosive or had sort of a whole bunch of twists and turns, et cetera, that felt manufactured. There was right. something that he really responded to, a piece that just kind of was, for lack of a better term, that felt very lived in, um, which actually is a little bit against my personal style. I am naturally something of an Aristotelian. I believe in reversal and <laughs> catharsis. And uh-huh. so... It was a it was a, a high bar for me to try to to rein some of those things in to see what happens if I just l- let the train run, see uh-huh. what goes, and so as part of that, I I think I leaned on a few things that are constantly in my wheelhouse. I'm I always the concept of family and how we define family runs through almost all my work. And as much as I tried to take a hard left turn with Heartland, <laughs> that that's still here, um, yeah. especially because of the, the uh, initial scene that fired off was between a father and a daughter, uh, father and a yeah, father and a daughter. So uh, that, that relationship started to be at its core. And then we had another male actor and f- figuring out how he fit into it um, was part of the evolutionary process of the piece. And then something interesting happened. Uh, some of the personnel changed uh, in terms of the actors. And as part of that change in personnel, I also discovered in the writing, huh, there's something missing. And I realized the play really wanted a fourth 
character and not just any fourth character, but a, a real free radical that could just sort of upend the proceedings. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, we really lucked out with an actress who is totally game. And um, when, when the personnel changed and we, we had almost an, almost a new company, um, three new actors that reshaped a lot of the material because I was at a place where I could really start to refine the characters around the personalities of the actors as well. And what was, what they were, were strong at. Um, and there, and it's funny because, <laughs> yeah, I, I think memorization has been difficult for a few of the actors because it, it, it ha- I have listened so closely to them that sometimes the line of what feels manufactured and what f- should feel conversational versus performative has suddenly gone away for them. Uh-huh. And so they, d- they don't trust themselves because it sounds so just conversational natural. Uh-huh. Which I'm not saying that I'm brilliant or anything. It's I'm telling them I'm aping you. Uh, But that entire process allowed me to to really kind of solidify some of the characters. And so it has become, because of the process, a much more character-driven piece than I probably would have naturally written. which is good. It's a good exploration, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and I'm wondering if um, just because of, like you said, this change in cast that you had, you know, as with all things related to theater, <laughs> anytime <laughs> sort of uh, an unexpected change occurs, there's that moment of, uh-oh, followed immediately by, wow, this really worked out for the best. And I feel like that happens so often is there something that you can take from this experience and put into your writing in the future um you know that you otherwise wouldn't have learned if the if those people hadn't switched out right um i think for one one thing that that i have learned is to really and i I think i've always considered myself fairly flexible in the process because theater is theater. Personnel changes all the time at every level for various reasons, whether it's life events, whether it's jobs. That in and of itself, it just happens. You know, it, it, yeah. to a certain extent, it is what it is. I think to your question, what's really good is it did force me to really hone in on my abilities or the need to lay aside one idea of a piece for an idea that is more compelling and maybe it may be a lot of work, but you know, when you have different variables instead of it, I think it would have been a total missed opportunity, right. For me to look at these new actors and say, okay, well I need you to mold yourself to this. Right. That would, I mean, but I'm a living playwright, you know, so that'd be one thing if, the playwright was away or or dead playwright and the script was already frozen, but we have the luxury of a script that's alive. I'm here. We're in the creative process. It gave me yet one opportunity, one more opportunity to say, well, wait, let's make this as strong as it can be for all of the people in the room. 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's not serving me, but it's telling the best story possible. And everyone is around this table invested in it because I'm reshaping it for you. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that's a very specific way of working. It's not the only way, but I think in this situation, when actors aren't getting paid and this is guerrilla theater, it's a way of saying, I acknowledge the the, volu- the artistic volunteer that's inside of you by saying that I'm not going to force you to do this other play, this old one, but that we are creating this all together. Yeah. Uh, and I, that, was import- that was an important ethos for me. Yeah. So this is probably a great time for me to go ahead and do a quick sponsor read. Um, and you, did, I don't know if you got a chance to uh, listen to either of the previous shows that I've done. Um, so if you haven't, you might be surprised when I say that the show is sponsored by Chris Rogers Bass and Photography. <laughs> I love it. So if you are living in the New York uh, City area and you're looking for a great headshot photographer... Uh, you can check out MrChrisRogers.com, and that's Chris with a K, and Rogers has no D. So Mr. Chris with a K, MrChrisRogers.com. And, uh, I can vouch for his headshot services because the one that I use is a Chris Rogers photography original. Oh, it is! Yes. You, the ones that I use right now are as well, and when I need new ones, I am hoping that I can make the trip out to New York again um, to do you that. You and me Exactly, exactly. So, uh, and if you need someone to play, uh, bass as well for your show. Now, Chris is another guy who Darren and I did shows with in high school, and he was always a phenomenal bass player, incredibly talented, was, is always able to, um, sort of bring a cohesive, uh, um, element to the group that he's in. Um, fantastic, upright, uh, you know, electric. Doesn't matter what style. Chris is your man. Chris Rogers, bass and photography. That's Mr. M-R, K-R-I-S-R-O-G-E-R-S dot com. Uh, check him out. Cause he's yep. incredible. And he's a good guy to boot. But don't tell him I said that. Cause <laughs> I, I, I can't let him know that I actually think that. So. All right. So there you go. Woo! So, so, so getting back to Heartland. Now it's funny because, um, Heartland, uh, so if you're just listening to this and you, it just popped into your um, audio feed, it's Heartland, H-A-R-D-T-L-A-N-D, which I think is just clever as can be. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just curious, where, <laughs> when, uh, when did that pop in there? Okay. When, when did you sort of have that idea? Um, the, the, <sighs> the titles are my... My Waterloo. I, I hate. <laughs> I put it off as long as possible. Um, generally speaking, there's always something that I dislike about every single title that I have, I have, except for one. One play, there is a title that I am quite happy with. It's about. It's that's just that one play. Um, and you don't want to give it away for some reason. What? You don't want to give it away. Oh, I'll give it away. It's it's uh, my play that's actually been anthologized. A short play called "You're Invited." Okay. Um, really? And, yes. Well, because it's that one. It's it's a that one's a double entendre because what starts the it it takes place at a 
upscale toddler's birthday party. And what starts the play in motion is that one of the guest children pees on the birthday cake. So you're (laughs) invited. Um, so that's that's where you're that's where you're invited to get started with. But now, see, Heart- I think Heartland is just as clever as that. <laughs> well, the funny thing about Heartland, I, I'm I love the title now, but the process to get to it was painful because I just couldn't figure out what the play wanted, to, what it wanted to be called. Um, the at that point in time, I didn't have a last name for the for the family that's at the center of the the piece who are now called the hearts. And I just knew the play takes place in a sort of indiscriminate Midwest, Midwestern town. Uh, So I knew that I wanted to evoke place, um, but just calling it heartland without some sort of, uh, I don't know, commentary spin something on it just felt kind of easy or hollow and then i remembered what a lot of the play is for me personally mike like i said earlier my connection to it is the the issue of this family and so when i went about thinking about last names for the family the hearts huh um they are a very hard family um the character they they are hard-hearted uh, to steal a phrase. And so that's how that particular spelling of heart came about. Um, and then once I had that, I said, oh, Heartland. There you go. Uh, but I stewed about it for quite a while, and it came to me while I was running one day. I was out running along K-10 on the west edge of Lawrence. Um, <laughs> and grasshoppers were running into me, and things were smacking me in the face, and it just kind of clicked. Heartland. So, but it, it came after a lot of thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that's funny because uh, a lot of the um, uh, the various and sundry endeavors that I partake in, I will also go running and then I'll have an idea come to me or a whole series of like, okay, here's the exact order of events that needs to occur to make this work for me. Mm. <laughs> um do you ever get frustrated by when you get back home from your run and you get in the shower and then you get out and you go, wait a minute, what, what was, was everything I just thought of? That right. happens well, to me all the time. And I haven't found a good solution for capturing any of that while I'm running. I I wish I could say that I did have a good solution. I don't. <laughs> Generally speaking, what I do, it's weird because I listen to music while I run. Some people do. Some people can't stand to listen to music. It helps me. Um, but I tend to, for lack of a better term, obsess while I run. And when I hit on something, I just repeat it over and over and over in my head. Um, Uh because I know exactly, I know that if I don't, what happens to you is exactly what will happen to me, even worse. Um, and it has happened even still, but the only way I've found around it is to just go ahead and, and think hard on it. Because when I thought of Heartland, I, it took me... I think I was only about 15 or so minutes into the run, which left another 30 minutes to keep kind of <laughs> running keep it. That's cycling. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it, 
that's about the only way I've figured out how to do it. But I do, I do know that regardless, uh, some of my best thinking happens when I'm running. So yeah, you just need an assistant to run with you. Right. Just as you're running, you just, you say, you just be quiet, run two steps behind me. And and then when I look at you and say something, write it down. (laughs) Write it down now. I'm going to put out a Craigslist ad on that. That's what I'll do. There you go. There you go. And uh, it'll be obviously a volunteer position to start with, you know, Uh-oh. possible shares in the company. We call those internships. <laughs> so uh, speaking of internships, um, uh, this is really a terrible segue, actually. And I'm not even going to pretend that it's it's not. Well, it's not that bad. Uh, How has it been working with Ad Astra? Uh, let's ah. separate out the fact that it's people that you know and love already. What's been mm-hmm. your experience working with um, a company of this size and shape? Right. Um, so I have had a really great experience with Ad Astra. Heartland is not the first project that I've worked with at Astra on. Uh, I've been part of their 24-hour play festival with my own writing twice. And then uh, the first time that I had ever performed in years and years and years and years and years was in an Ad Astra show, a production of Title of Show. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, what Ad Astra proves and what I, I prize about Ad Astra is that Art can, especially theatrical art, can be done anywhere. That you are willing to gather some willing participants who want to tell a story in a particular space. That's what it takes. And right. um, at Astra is certainly they've over the years they've that past few years they've certainly expanded and they're going to in terms of doing um, harder work in more traditional theater spaces. But where they started and what I, the ethos that I hope that they um, continue with is that idea of art that's interesting that speaks to communities now uh, and that can be picked up and done just about anywhere um, and I'm I know that I'm lucky to be around at this stage in their development um, and so that it's been a really Every time it's been a very positive experience. I just don't have complaints. Um, you know, you have those complaints that any sort of new um, young company has of, gosh, I wish there was more money to do X. I wish there was more money to run right. the show longer. But in terms of the quality and the process, no, I, I, I think that... Um, more more companies like Ad Astra across the nation be, are are what we need in America right now. Yeah, and you know, I was saying before that I think they'd really fit in to a place like Chicago, and it's just so interesting to me to think. Now, I haven't lived in Topeka for a while now, but mm-hmm. there aren't too many companies like Ad Astra in Topeka. Yeah. No, you know, um, they're, they're sort of a rare bird out there. Yes, certainly. And in that respect, you know, I think that, uh, in large, in large part, no one's doing a lot of the pieces that Ad Astra is interested in for a variety of reasons, uh, at least in, in Northeast Kansas. And so 
they're carving out an identity, which is really important. I don't, yeah, I think some of the problems that some companies get into is they can be too scattershot in right, what right. program, um, you know, projects that are simply vanity projects. Uh, because, you know, and, and part of doing, starting a company is you want to do work that interests you. And so that, some of that's unavoidable. And you want, you want passion to guide your choices. But I think you also have to um, be practical with that passion and think about, okay, well, who are we and what can we accomplish? And I think Ad Astra is, is working with all of those questions. And it's been, it has taught me so much to sort of be, to a certain extent, on the outside of the decision-making process and watch Craig and Dan and the other members of the board go through all of those decision-making steps um, that include where are we going to perform? How do we get people to come see it? Um, uh-huh. What do we charge? What do we program? How sustainable are we? Right. Uh, I think that it's it's uh, those are questions that all not for profits face, but arts organizations especially have to think about them in both the practical. Um, realm, but also the realm of are we accomplishing that which makes us happy, but also keeps us in conversation with the community that we're a part of. Yeah, those are those are hard things to balance, and I think they're doing. Yeah, and you know, it's sort of this thing that I've been slowly wrapping my mind around recently. Of you know, so much theater so many artists, not the majority are out there saying we have to do something impactful and aggressive. And, and that's very true. But at the same time, you also have to remember there's the other side of, of the coin, which is the audience. Yes. You you have to do something for yourself, but you also have to do it for the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think once you, once you, balance those two things you will get all the support you could ever possibly need no matter what happens to arts funding in your community in your city in your state if you can create that desire Mm -hmm. for something you'll be able to push through i mean we've seen it time and time again and sometimes it's harder than others but i think ad astra you know, seems to be doing the right thing so far. And that's really exciting for me as someone whose heart is very much still in Topeka. Yeah, it's, and it's, what you said is so true. It's a struggle, right? Like there's no, the the trick is with everything artistic, there's no formula that we can all lean on. Um, And there are times where all companies say, well, that might've been a misfire. Um, (laughs) You know, those are all learning experiences. Um, I've had them. It's weird. I've been really lucky to sort of have touch points with a variety of what I call theater makers, people who are starting companies or head companies. It's, it's a, a hat that I would love to wear sometime, but I, it just is not within my wheelhouse at the moment, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. But it has allowed me to really kind of be a great observer of practices that I think that I've seen, oh, that, that's a, a way to do this that really works. And, you know, to also see 
a way where you say, oh, that's not quite how you want to go about it. And what you said, I think, is really at the heart of it is realizing that what has kept theater alive down through the centuries, the millennia, really, is knowing that an audience comes because they they are being spoken to. Yes. Right? Um, that they're experiencing something that they can't get elsewhere with the liveness of the performance. But even that liveness must take their presence into consideration. Right. And so, you know, that's, um, I, I think that, that Ad Astra does ask that question. And I think any, any theater organization that wants to have a, a long life, as you said, has to ask that question and make sure that they're, they're asking, how are we speaking to the people around us? Right. Well, I feel uh, very fortunate that I'm going to be in town to see the show yes, coming up this I'm weekend. Not. I'm I, very excited. I'm thrilled you're coming. Yeah. Um, let me kind of shoot this over into left field now. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah let, me, let me collect my thoughts. I was going to say something, and now I've totally lost my train of thought. I've gone off the rails. <laughs> just like the characters in just, your show. Just like every good play. Uh, no, I really have lost it. Um, it was left field. It was left field. It, was it, had, to do, it had to do with the writing process. and uh, Oh, oh, here's, here's where it is. Um, the fact that you're a teacher. You're an educator. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, and I feel like this is also sort of a, a view that is held just about as strongly as, you know, if you're a writer, you should write and let the director direct and, you know you know, uh, cross that line with caution. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard it said that uh, it is very important for those in academia that are doing theater specifically anyway, or doing the arts, uh, mm-hmm. need to also be in the professional realm as well, need to be out producing and making the art, which they teach um, the next generation how to produce and make, and you're you you've been doing that. Um, how's that been working out for you? And and I assume you also uh, agree that that is probably the best route to go. You know, without offending maybe some people you've worked with in the past. <laughs> I was say, how how do I do this very politic way? Um, I I will say this uh, for to your the first part of that that question. Yeah, I, you know. Students are not dumb. Students can sense whether or not you know of which you speak. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, if you don't have practical knowledge or experience, I think you, you, you run the risk of losing that, that draw, that pull, that true gift for your students. Um, so, you know, whether or not you're <laughs> churning out plays or productions, um, I do think it's, it's important in our field that um, there be a real passion for the practical portion of what we do Right. If you're gonna if you're gonna stand up in front of a classroom or in an educational setting and impart wisdom knowledge to someone else, yeah. Um, 
I think that it has been a learning experience for me. I'm now in my, I've just started my fourth year on faculty at Mm -hmm. Kate. In the years that I was in undergrad and graduate school, I ignored all the the people who said, oh, you know, you'd make a great professor. I was like, that's not where my head is. My head is about playwriting. That is who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I just didn't, I never saw myself in a professorial kind of way. Um, And then when the opportunity came up to apply, by that point in time, I had said, well, you know, it's a good way to keep a steady paycheck. Right. Because those are, those are in, those are few and far between. And then the, the deeper I got into the process of applying and thinking about how much I loved sharing my joy, frankly, in, in the writing process and in playwriting with other people, I sort of said, well, you know, maybe, maybe there is something to this. Maybe there are skills here that I have. Because I think that was the thing that I struggled with is I really doubted my skill in, in teaching. Um, but in, uh, in working with workshops and talking with other friends who are writers and responding to work, I found that there, those actually were skills that I had in my wheelhouse and had developed over time. Um, but it is, it is a hard balance. Any yeah. per- person who is in the academy, no matter what they do, whether they are an engineer, a biotech person, whether they are a director in theater or, or you know, someone like my colleagues in the English department trying to, to publish, it is crazy to try to figure out how you're going to balance your research or creative production with the teaching because the va- despite what some people think, I think the vast majority of professors that I work with really do care about the quality of their teaching. Mm-hmm. And to, to provide high-quality teaching takes time. Yeah. And once you've accomplished that, to then say, all right, now go write a play. Now go figure out how to cure cancer. Now... Um, figure out how you're going to open a new show of, or in a new gallery or something along those lines. All, all these are things that colleagues of mine have, have had to figure out how to do. And I'm, you know, considered or certainly considered early career in the professorial sense. And it's, it's a learning process. It's a, the, the learning curve is pretty steep on that. And I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, uh, my, I am lucky in that my department has been very encouraging of me and keeping keeping the writing going. Um, yeah, keep making sure that you know I feel feel supported in terms of when I need to travel to work on projects in New York or Chicago or Miami or even and you know have, coming to see Heartland, which I know a few of my colleagues definitely are coming to see this oh, weekend. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So, um, that part is great, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a process Yeah, learning it. Um, so I, I therefore assume since you said, you know, the quality is so important that, uh, tomorrow for class, you're going to take the day off and just play this podcast for your students. I and wish- you're just going to be in a hammock in the front of the class, rocking yourself with a stick. Do you know what is so? <laughs> you know what's so funny? I did not. I did not plan this, but in my intro to drama, 
course, we are watching the Paul Newman uh, production of Our Town. These uh-huh. ones, Our Town. And then in my honors course that I teach in the afternoons, we're going to be watching the film version of Ragtime because we've been studying the novel Ragtime. And I'll, at some point, I'll play clips from the, the Broadway production to also have some comparison across forms of how story gets manipulated. Um, but I, <laughs> I realized in looking at my syllabus, that it were bo- actually both of them, and said, it looks like I'm being lazy, but that totally is not what is happening. <laughs> how? <laughs> just how the, the course material lined up. Yes, yes. But that is, hey, that is one of the perks of, you know, of teaching material like this is every now and then you do get to relax and enjoy some great art, you know, that you can pop on the screen with your students. And then the really exciting part is, of course, after that, you get to sort of dissect it. It is. And that's, I think that's what I, to try and impart to the students and remind them, you know, now there is the passive audience member is done, right, for them. We are, they're now in a yeah. scholarly situation where I'm going to expect them to – we've been discussing Our Town and its themes. Now I want you to look at what does Paul Newman do that allows us to see the stage manager in the way that we discussed. You know, what is um, the actress that's playing Emily doing that really makes the goodbye ticket, goodbye clocks ticking and goodbye world, all that come alive? How is she accomplishing what we discussed? And that's what makes um, those days difficult for me is that it's hard for me to turn off the critical viewer. Right. Uh, because I, I want, as the instructor, always feel like I have to model for the student mm-hmm. how I want you to, to engage with what we're doing here. Um, I, I once helped with a production of Oleana. Oleana? Oleana? Oleana. Is Oleana. How I've often heard it. But. Yeah, well, uh, um, you know, Mammoth's, Mammoth's play. Uh, I did some <laughs> fight choreography with it. Uh, and... I got to listen to opening night was also a talk back because it was at a community college. Um, so I got to watch the production, see my actors do a great job with the fighting, um, enjoy the whole rest of the show, which I hadn't seen up to that point. I'd only seen the scenes that sort of, you know, bookend the fighting that I choreographed. And, uh, I got to listen to the, the students talk about the play and they had been reading it in class and then come to see it. You know, it was this sort of, um, uh, experience where the English department and the drama department sort of join forces to do this thing so that they could create this great experience for the students, which I thought was wonderful. And the right. students started talking about the themes in the show and really getting into the sort of uh, English lit, diving <laughs> down into it. And uh, so the greatest thing that the actor uh, uh what, who was playing, uh, the role of the professor whose name I forget. What's the name of the role of, I forget. Anyway, the professor. There's two characters in the show, the professor <laughs> and the girl, right? Um, anyway, um, this was Brian Simmons and he said, you know, that's all great that you can identify these themes and these things, but how do you play that? Well, you don't. <laughs> You know, you don't. You just play what's going on with the character. And those themes are wonderful. And it's something interesting to really break down. But I cannot 
I cannot play you this theme that runs across the show. I can merely portray this character. So I'm wondering, being that you started, well, I assume you started as an actor, I, I, I'm sure writing came into your life very early on, probably earlier than I would even suspect, but most of your work that I knew you for anyway was as an actor. Um, so when you write, do you ever find that you are putting on the actor's cap and going, wait a minute, I can't really, do I really want to focus on this theme because it's not really a playable theme? Is that even enter into the equation or do you just write and get it down and decide later or even I- decide at all if this is playable? My process in that respect is a, a, I'm a, in my own personality as a person, um, I'm very pragmatic. And so I try not to, and this is the Aristotelian in me, I think about what's the dramatic situation. I let the theme work itself out later. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I came to, False Creeds, which is, you know, about the 1921 Tulsa disaster where, um, called the Black Holocaust, um, set in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. Uh, I came to it as a situation in, in the thought of, okay, if you're a middle, middle class, upwardly mobile black family on the night that the your neighborhood is burnt to the ground. How do you respond? And then in writing that, themes began to develop. But I never write themes because that to me, and maybe that is the actor in me or the former actor. <laughs> um, and current. That, Don't forget. It's just line. Not, Come on now. <laughs> right. True. True. It, it's hard for me to write that, but I can write, you know, the scene that really got false creeds off the ground is a scene where between a husband and wife and the wife is begging the husband not to go out into the night to defend the neighborhood. She says, I need you here. Uh, your daughter needs you here. You're going out to protect the neighborhood. What about your family? That to me is writable for me personally. Right. And there's your, your family again. Your Right. And there, oh, see, caught me. Um, there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's family again. Now, that scene in discussion with actors often becomes about, this is the scene where I understand how much they love each other. This is the scene where I understand what danger means. This is the scene where we discuss um, black masculinity and how that works and behaves. But if I had sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a scene about love, marriage, black masculinity, I'd still be sitting in front of my laptop this many years later. Right. Um, Because it, it... uh, that it, maybe it is the idea of it not being playable. For me, it's, it, it's not the dramatic, that is not the dramatic situation. Now, those things do become useful in the rewrite process when it becomes okay. this question of, oh crap, I don't know what this scene is about. I know what happens in it. I know what occurs, but what am I getting at? And in the playing of it, it's like the scene wants to get at some idea and then discussing what is that idea that it is or is not getting at opens can sometimes open a floodgate. 
So that that's actually that happened with that particular scene, as a matter of fact. Um, so I don't I don't know I I I struggle with that, but I think in general, it's it's the dramatic situation that starts that starts the writing for me. Nice, nice. I like the idea of that being very informative. Then you do get to put on your thinking cap after you've created this scene. You do get to give it some uh, cerebral scrutiny for the rewrites. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and as a professor, when it comes to text analysis, it's actually students coming to drama when they're looking at the play in script form tend to kind of start with the big ideas and I have to work them towards following the text closely, right? Where mm-hmm. you know, the first play we looked at this semester was a play from 18, uh, 1845 called Fashion. And we spent, I'm going to say half a class period just breaking down what happens on the first page of dialogue, Right how the characters are playing certain things and how that actually sets up all those big ideas that we had spent the previous class period talking about that yeah. were in the play and saying, aha, do you see how the playwright, how Anna Mallet looks at these ideas and weaves them into the drama from the very beginning. So that you don't even have to, if you're following the story, you don't have to worry about getting the big ideas by the end of it. She's been hitting you with it the past yeah. two years. Yeah. So that's the ideal situation, I guess. Well, you know, Darren, I think you could play this for your class and just leave it at that one day. <laughs> so you can have a movie one day, and then the next day you can have some audio and tell your class to just kick back and listen to the dulcet tones of <laughs> Professor Kennedy and um, schlub Don Denton. Listen to the fabulous radio announcer. over professor kennedy's commentary yeah Um, so let me just let people know where they can go to find out well is there anything anywhere people can go to find out more about you specifically or am i just going to shoot people to ad astra theater.com so the funny thing is um i i don't have a website which is Ooh, bad news bears. But I have my, my faculty profile on K- at KU. So if you go to english.ku.edu, um, you click on faculty. I'm there under faculty. And it yeah. has my CV and my bio and my head, my Chris Rogers headshot. And, there you go. <laughs> uh, sort of my what I call my project. The things that really kind of drive me as a playwright. Um, are all sort of up there for all to see. And then for information about Heartland, yeah, the Ad Astra website. Great. And so we're going to make this really easy. So you can either listen to what Darren just said and go there, or you can go to the show notes for this episode of The Only Podcast on the Internet, which is at <laughs> theonlypodcastontheinternet.com slash, I believe, three, the number three. And you'll see this show and all the show notes, and you can just click the links through there. And uh, maybe someday in the future when Darren gets himself a personal promotional website, we can add that to the list for the show notes. But probably not. I'll probably have forgotten about this long since then. <laughs> I was gonna say, you'll be on, <laughs> feel like interview 55 by then. <laughs> um, so adastratheater.com if you want to check out Heartland if you're uh, in the Topeka area this upcoming weekend. 
Ad Astra Theater is A-D-A-S-T-R-A-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot com. Um, and you can find all the information there for not only Heartland, but all of the other great shows that they're doing. And you can also check out Darren performing on stage in a chorus line as well. I assume you don't make a cameo in Heartland, do you? Or is that maybe something you don't want to give away? No, no, no. Although there have been, there, in the past, cameos have occurred in things, but not this. Well, no. All right. So there you have it, at estratheater.com, um, and then check out Darren's profile at uh, the KU faculty um, website. And look for more from both at Astra and Darren Kennedy um, if you want to be on the sort of cutting edge of what's going to be, what's going, what, what professors in the future will be teaching is, will be Darren Kennedy's work. So you can get a you can get a head start on the future of academia right now. If you're like five years old, you really need to get into Darren's stuff now so that you can be well versed in it. <laughs> I don't know any good gossip. I mean, we could tell people who don't know Kelly that she's pregnant. That's true. We could say that she's finally earned the name I gave her, Prego Dego. Oh my goodness, I forgot about that. <laughs> um, I will tell you that... Um, Not Dago, by the way. Dago. Right. Yes, Degenhart is her last name. If, if 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 people would look at me strange, I would use the phrase in the family way all day every day. <laughs> Certainly. I was just telling someone the other day about um, discovering used condoms in the park. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, when <laughs> Rachel Perry came over and was like, uh, Shaft? What? One of your kind which I didn't know what she was like, what, like a black person? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, Rachel's really racist. So yeah, that's definitely what she meant. <laughs> One of your kind has left something over here. And I was like, what is she talking about? And so I go over and of course, because it's the break of leggers and they're all like 12 and 13, they're all standing in a circle around it. And I was like, everyone just, ba- everyone just back up, back, back up, away, away. And you know, you- you grab and it's it was like bright neon purple or something. I remember like grabbing a stick and watching. <laughs> <laughs> oh.